Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Peidecker, and folks, I have a very special guest, uh, really doesn't need an introduction. Uh, Brent Metcalf, welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, Brent and I, we, we sometimes we get caught up talking off camera and we're like, oh, we better start taping. So uh, we figure we better start taping. It's a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so basically, Brent, you know, I, I've, I've been following your work for years. Uh, you know, I've read some of your papers. Uh, I got the signature book series of, of essays that feature your work as well. So Brent Metcalf, along with Dan Vogel and others are people that I've been reading for decades. So you're a familiar name to me. And uh, I always just really respected the work that you did. Um, and so it is exciting to have you on. But before we get into that, I just want you to give us a little background, um, where you were born, and maybe talk about growing up uh, in an LDS household. Well, I, you know, I, I'm an immigrant to the, the US and uh, my, my father and, and mother were uh, both working on a temple mission in New Zealand. And that's where I was born. And uh, I'm sorry if you hear dogs in the background, oh, because we, we have four of them. So just to give you a heads up, but uh, um, you know, my, my father and mother worked on a temple mission building the New Zealand temple. And then my dad became the first recorder in the New Zealand temple. And so um, my parents were both converts and at different ages. My mom joined when she was younger. My dad joined when he met my mom. And um, so I've kind of grown up in this very LDS family. And when we came to the US, the primary reason was so that my dad could come and work for the LDS church, which is what he did. And he worked for the genealogical society for a number of years. And then uh, he became the recorder or the assistant recorder, I should say, of the Salt Lake Temple, then eventually became the recorder, and then eventually managing director of temp temples for the LDS Church. So think something like uh, COO, right? Chief Operating Officer of Temples. That was his role. And if you heard temples being announced in general conference, they were almost certainly temples that, that my dad had recommended to the first presidency. And so that was how involved he was in the intricacies of uh, Mormonism. And I, I had a, you know, I worked for church security. My brother worked for the church. My brother-in-law worked for the church. We were all very integrated into this world. And so that was what I saw as my future was that I was going to be involved in that for the rest of my life. Hmm. You know, I'm just curious. Uh, so you said your father was in, in charge of like 
did he ever go talk to you? Well, one, tell, maybe give us some examples of some of the temples that he uh, picked out, but also did he ever tell you about the process of what he would go through to maybe select some of these locations as possible places? Yeah, act, actually, that, that's a really good question because there, there are a couple of ways that he did it. Um, he had a map on his wall of every with pins in it of every temple that had been prophesied by every president and where they would be located. And these are temples that, that had not been built. And so um, one of the most interesting ones, I just have to tell you this, was the one that was pinpointed for Tehran, Iran. Hmm. And, and I've always found that to this day, probably the most fascinating temple that of course has never been built, but was had a pin in it on the map. And so, uh, yeah, so, so basically he would go through that type of process and then he would also look at the number of members in a given area. And that would have a significant point and the activity rate. He, he had, you know, he had a whole team. It wasn't just him. He had a whole team around him and they would sit down and go through and say, what would be the most logical place to put the next one? And then they would take those recommendations to the first presidency. And of course they could reject them. You know, they, they didn't have to accept them. But, but more often than not, they, they would accept them. And that's where the next temple would be built. So would would they they would pick out the temp, the like they would say this is the place that it's supposed to be built and then your father would then scout out locations or would he actually go and actually say oh this would be a great city to put a temple how did how did that work yeah the opposite way around okay my my dad would would you know go through whether it's the prophetic utterances prophetic ones okay former prophets okay or current prophets okay. even and then look at which ones are feasible given okay. the number of members okay. and um the population and so on and then he would identify that this is where it needs to go well really and, well, thank you and then you. that would go to the first presidency okay. right and then then they would look at that and say, do we agree or not agree, hmm. right? Because they had the first right of refusal, so to speak, right. you know, I mean, they could look at it and say, no, we, we don't agree with that or yes. And, and of course they would go through the whole process. I mean, I don't want to minimize that they didn't go through the process of you know, praying about it and determining, is this the right place? I don't want to minimize that because I, I'm sure that they did. But um, 
I know that Spencer Kimball, for example, had tremendous confidence in my dad to identify things, but my dad, you know, worked there up until the 1990s hmm. before he retired as managing director. He was, you know, selected in the 1970s, worked there through the 1990s in that role. And that was basically how it was done. And it wasn't just a corporate decision. That, that would be misguided to say that because I think my dad and his team felt very inspired in what they were doing. And then they would take that take that to the first presidency and the first presidency would be the ultimate level of inspiration do we feel comfortable with this and if they did then it was cleared and they would start to build it wow very interesting to me yeah it's just to find out the process of how that works now you had mentioned earlier on that you were and you and your brother were in got into church security so why don't you tell us how you got into that okay so so my brother actually worked in he went through the ranks of the uh, genealogical department and through family history and um he just recently retired and he was, I believe, the director of the family history libraries throughout the world. And so that required, of course, a lot of travel and so on to get records. And he was, you know, deeply involved in that. And, um, and so when I returned from a mission, the, the natural progress is that I would go into a role that would be involved with church employment. And so it, as it turns out, I got an interview with church security right after my mission. This is in 1979. And um, yeah, so I got hired and when I talk about church security, right, because now they're much more, uh, how can I put it? They're, they're much more equipped. I'm guessing that most church security guards carry guns now and so on. And it's not because they're trying to put a militaristic bent on it, but because there are some seriously dangerous people out there. And one of my dear friends was shot down as a security guard, you know, just working in the Jenny or in the family history library. Some guy walked in and just started shooting. My goodness. And, and he was dead that, that quickly. And, and he was a dear friend of mine. And so um, things have changed in that regard, but these are professionally trained people, right? Mm -hmm. they, they know how to use firearms. Many of them are former police, 
former FBI, you take it, they've done it. Whereas when I was there, we were basically night watchmen, you know, I, I mean, you know, or, or day watchmen as the case may be. We, we went around checking locks on buildings, things like that, making sure everything was secure. And that's what we did. We really rarely had to deal with big issues. I mean, on occasion we did, but not that often. And so we carried no weapons, you know, and we just worked on securing the buildings. And which buildings and did, did you work security at? Well, it, it would have been all of them, right? Mm -hmm. So the the church office building, the, uh, 47 East South Temple, um, all of Temple Square, and then also the Granite Mountain Vault. Oh. And so we we did all of that. Um, yeah, the, the closest thing that we had back then to having anything that could help us control an extreme circumstance is that we had a canine unit. So we had a unit that had uh, pretty large German shepherds in it. And they were trained, very well trained. And just like a police dog, you know, or a military dog. And so if we had an extreme circumstance to try and deal with something, uh, sometimes they would be called in. And it was, it, I, it, they never attacked anyone. It was purely to get someone under control. And that was it. So um, you, you, you said you worked church security on a previous talk that we had um, from 1979 to 1983. Um, and I just, I just wanna know while you're doing church security, you're also doing some research and doing yeah. some writing. So talk about that. Yeah, so so I I read incessantly during that time, and um, you know I had a goal of reading a book a day, and and along with multiple articles, and so um, I just immersed myself in the field of historical and literary criticism and biblical criticism in particular. And um, it was during that time that I began doing in-depth research on the roots of Mormonism. And so for example, there was a period of time where I spent weeks at uh, BYU just reading early 19th century autobiographies and biographies to understand the experiences of the early 19th century folks. And of course, that's where I discovered, you know, things like the same formula that we see in First Nephi in chapter one. The description he gives is, basically the same stylistic narrative of what you see in these autobiographies. 
And, um, and it was also during that time that I discovered that other people in that era were experiencing things that are very similar to Joseph Smith's first vision. And uh, yeah, you know, Billy Hibbert comes to mind, who is a Methodist. You actually you coined know, a he, term for that type of genre. What was the term you used? I, I, I use um, uh, a conversion epiphany. Yeah. Right. Because because what I what I realized is that these folks are being converted in all these different ways. And these, you know, epiphanies or theophanies, if you will, sometimes they only see, they'll only say they see Jesus. But Billy Hibbard actually says he sees, you know, the Father and Jesus on the right hand. You know, and, and I'm like, whoa, this sounds really familiar here. And so I wanted to pursue it more and more. And it was at that point that I started um, reading different PhD dissertations and all kinds of books about Mormon history. And I read Marvin Hill's PhD dissertation on Christian primitivism. And so I started going through his footnotes and trying to look up every book that I could find to see what they were talking about. And that's when I found the um, autobiography of Elias Smith. And this is why, while I'm still working for the LDS Church. And so I go and uh, discover that that book is in the church history library. And that was the whole thing that eventually led to me being fired and then forced to resign from church security because of what I found in that book. And tell us what you found. So um, on the outside of the book, it had the date as uh, 1840. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I had looked inside the book, there was a piece of paper inserted, piece of paper inserted was almost certainly inserted by Wilfred Polson, who was a BYU professor at the time. And, and I could also tell by the check marks that he would put throughout the book because I had read his books before that were in his collection. So I knew what they looked like. And um, inside of this book, he had put a parallel between the life of Joseph Smith and the life of Ethan Smith. And the, basically the concept was that you had these two people going down this trajectory of having these visions, first visions, if you will, believing that they were going to restore primitive Christianity and so on. 
And that was all on the inside of this book. So I went over to the uh, receptionist that was in the church history library. And I mentioned to her that the date on the book, 1840, was incorrect. The date should actually be 1816. That's when this book was actually published. And I could tell why the mistake was made because it said um, on the interior that the book was printed 40 years after the day of our independence. And so it was the 40 that stuck in their mind. And they assumed 1840. And it's like, no, 40 years after the day of our independence is 1860. And so I pointed this out to her. So she had it sitting there on her desk when um, Roy Doxey came in and he was the head of the church correlation committee. And he sat down because the book was in the reserve section, which is upstairs. I had to fill out uh, a little checkout sheet basically for it so that it would come down. And he picks up the book and opens it and sees my name on that. And then he looks at the parallel sheet. And he says, what did Brent want with this book? Because he knew who I was. You know, we had talked before. And she said, I have no idea. He just was reading it. Well, then Roy Doxy goes over and photos, photocopies those pages, brings the book back. And she, she says, where are you taking those photocopies? And, I'm, and he says, I'm taking him to Marky Peterson's office, who's a member of the 12 Apostles. And so it was right after that, that I get called in and to make a very long and complicated story short, I get called in a first time. And then I get let go. And then my state president calls the head of security and he's absolutely enraged because he's the dean of the law school up at the University of Utah. So he's an intellectual and he can't believe that this has happened. And he's thinking, why wasn't I ever notified about this? And so he calls me in and says, I am so sorry that this has happened. I'm going to do what I can to rectify it. Well, he can't get my job back. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. And so um, what ends up happening is he contacts them and says, you cannot show on his employment record that he was fired. And so as a result, they said, we'll give you the option of resigning. And it, I actually said initially, I'll need to think about that for a day. Yeah, and so I went, went home, talked to him the next day, resigned. So just for our viewers who maybe are just new to Mormonism, you don't know all the lingo and stuff. Um, this parallel is Ethan Smith who wrote the book 
view of the Hebrews. And no, no, no. This is Elias Smith. Oh, you said Ethan Smith earlier. That's what oh, I, my apologies. Okay, that, so that was that was a mistake. Okay, so point. let's let's it's talk Elias about Smith. why this parallel is important. Okay, and then um, and why would it have been a big deal that you would have been going through this book? Well, I, I think the reason why is because Roy Doxey recognized the similarities between the life of Elias Smith and the visions that he had. And my apologies if I got that name wrong. Maybe I misheard. <laughs> no, no, no. I could have completely got it wrong. But Elias had similar experiences where he sees God and Jesus and so on. And there are these huge conversion epiphanies. This is how he knows that he has been forgiven of his sins. And of course, when you go to the 1830 account or 32 account of the uh, first vision, that's precisely what's happening. That vision that Joseph Smith has is a conversion epiphany where he is basically told he is forgiven of his sins and so on. Well, he wasn't alone and having that type of experience. And so Roy Doxey felt like we can't let the cat out of the bag on this. Mm. If Brent uses this against the church, this could be really bad. So what did they decide to do? Instead of calling me in and saying, we don't want you to use this. And if you you say truthfully that you won't, then you're fine. They decide to, to fire me and then force me to resign. And which is just craziness to me. Wow. But um, the real truth of it came out in the November following that, right? That happens in April of um 1983 so in the in the the following uh november i get a phone call and it's from tom monson's secretary member of the 12th and she says brother monson would like to meet with you or elder monson right so i said okay fine so i go and meet with them and we talk and we chat and then he gets down to the point. And the point is, is that he gives me a non-apology, basically. He says, we can, we can never apologize for what an apostle has done. Because we can't risk embarrassing that apostle. He doesn't say that what the apostles have done is wrong. He just says that that's kind of the rule. And then he asked me uh, eventually, do you plan on taking any of this about your termination and so on and forced resignation on the anti-Mormon circuit? That's the concern that they have. And, and I was so 
offended by that because I was an active LDS member when that happened. And I was so deeply, deeply offended. And, but what could I do? Well, let me ask you, what, why, why would they have thought that you might do that? Had you done, written anything or done anything that would have caused them to suspect you of wanting to do something? No, no. It, in fact, the whole reason why I was initially called in was because of some articles I had written for the 70s press, which was an off-campus uh, newspaper at BYU. But they were so innocuous. In fact, I would, I would call them, frankly, apologetic. And that's the reason why I was initially called in. And um, so, no, I, I can't imagine anything I had said or done other than publishing apologetic pieces in an off-campus BYU newspaper hmm. that would cause a problem. Nothing. It's very odd. It just doesn't compute for me because is it because they just don't want their church employees like security people and stuff submitting papers and writing? Is that is that kind of just they don't want that? Well, well that that's what it came down to. I mean, I was told to, you know, I, I was actually asked to, to write a review of a book for BYU studies. And um, and they they told me, you can't do that. You need to sever all ties with Sunstone. You need to sever all ties with the Seventh East Press. And I, I was in shock. I, I didn't know what to think. I, I never imagined that that was their view of all of this. And I was just trying to bring some type of uh, critical analysis to texts, and that was it. It wasn't to, to try and, you know, play down the church or destroy the church or anything else. That, that was the furthest, the furthest thing from my mind. That was not even a possibility for me. Hmm. And so I honestly don't understand why they went down that route. So, Tom, uh, one of the things you'd mentioned to me was that Thomas Monson kind of mentioned that you're, it was almost like there were, at, at the meeting, there were people because you had, didn't you contacted some of the gents? But how did they find out about you getting fired? You had mentioned that to me before. The general ah, parties. Yeah, it, this was uh, brought up in, because, you know, they have a weekly meeting mm -hmm. with the Quorum of the Twelve and First Presidency. And that's where one of them had found out, member of the Twelve, I can't remember which one, I want to say it was Neil A. Maxwell, but it found out what had happened. Okay. And, and Marky Peterson and at least two other members of the 12, from what I understand, were involved in having me terminated. Um, none of them had talked to the rest of the 12 
her first presidency. And so Tom Monson said that it was a very heated discussion between them over what had happened. And a number of them were asking, why did this happen? And why weren't we told about it, right? Because they could see that it could mushroom into something far bigger than what they ever thought. And so um, they, they were very concerned and, and probably rightfully so, you know, I mean, who knows what direction this could have taken had I really had some dark underbelly side to me, right? That, that was going to go in a different direction. So but that wasn't the case. I'm just curious now. So here you are, you're a faithful member, you're a believer, and you got a non-apology apology from Thomas Monson. How how was your faith after this this incident of getting basically fired and having this happen to you? What what what, what how how was your faith at this point? It, it, it wasn't so much my faith because I retained belief. It was more this absolute shock at being betrayed, not only by my employer, right, for no good reason, but by the highest ecclesiastical levels of my church. Mm -hmm. And that was just so disconcerting to me. Now, keep in mind, I had grown up in a home where I had always been taught that uh, the church leaders were anything but infallible. So I knew that, but I just never thought thought it would happen to me. That's what completely shocked me. And uh, it was a very, very difficult time. I mean, I remember it vividly. And the family conversations that we had. And, you know, who's to blame? And my mom was so angry that they had done this to me. And it, it was it was just a very difficult time, you know, but it wasn't that I had lost faith in the church at all. It was that I felt so betrayed and I never imagined this happening to me, especially at my age, for goodness sake. Yeah. You know, I got home from my mission in 1979, and here we are in 1983, and all this is happening, and all of these major general authorities are involved, and it's like, what's going on? And so, yeah, it, it, it was extremely difficult. So, you know, you're, you're really threw yourself into this research in this period of time. Um, what was your, 
intention? Were you just doing this like for your own personal benefit with the possibility of publishing or writing a book? I mean, what was, what was your, uh, or did you, were you just reading it for the sake of reading it because you just loved it? Oh, to, to write more uh, pieces that would defend Mormonism, basically. So apologetics. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was apologetics with a critical eye. Okay. Right. It wasn't your typical apologetics that you would associate with, say, farms or something like that. It was taking biblical scholarship, historical critical scholarship, literary criticism and bringing it to Mormonism. And saying, what gems can we find here? It was never thinking, you know what are the skeletons in the closet hmm. that was never it and um so that that was my intent you know i mean i in fact to this day i remember the the uh the tanners because i met them just shortly after my mission i went and visited their their bookstore because I had read some of their material while I was on my mission. Hmm. And so I went and met them and we had this spirited discussion and, and Gerald came out and I was talking to both Sandra and Gerald and, and I went down there several times to talk to them. And they actually wrote in one of their publications that they thought I was going to become the next Hugh Nibley. Hmm. and so that's the trajectory i was on at the time hmm. wow and that's what my thinking was do you think the timing was wrong it, because you just had the camelot airs years come to an end with the uh, with leonard errington kind of being booted and they right. and so maybe it was just the fact that you were kind of doing the same stuff that they had were starting to crack down on well the the camelot era was not nearly as transparent as you think. Hmm. I mean, I went in there all the time into the church archives and was declined access repeatedly for documents. The Camelot, the so-called, I want to call it Camelot area, area, you know, it was not era, was not nearly as transparent as you may think. Um, even Leonard Arrington, if you read his journals, right, that Gary Bajera edited, um, he talks about being refused access to certain historical works. And he's the historian of the church. And he's trying to get to to the bottom of certain issues and he's being completely declined access and uh that's not good you know and so so to say that you know the camelot era was something really revolutionary i think is a little bit misguided because i'll tell you right now there has never been transparency with historical documents like we have now nothing like it not even a little bit and so i i applaud the lds church 
for the transparency that they have now. And, uh, but no, the Camelot era was nothing like that. I mean, like I said, I went in there doing research all the time. I was constantly in the archives. And I would get declined document after document after document. Fascinating. So you now are no longer employed by the church. Um, yes. Tell us what's happened, maybe the, the trajectory of your research and, and other things that are going on at this time. Okay, so so my my interest and interest now and have been for some time is textual scholarship and Mormon texts and trying to look at the texts with the the view of all of the methods that come to bear in analyzing texts from a historical perspective. And so, for example, I'm very interested in handwriting. I'm very interested in looking at the manuscripts to try and determine um, what underlies erasures in a document and what was written over them and so on. Uh, those are things that are fundamental to my research right now. And then also analyzing the date and order in which certain manuscripts were being written. And so the Book of Abraham has already, you know, always been uh, a major theme for me. And looking at those manuscripts and then Joseph Smith's Egyptian project as well, and all of those manuscripts, the Egyptian alphabet manuscripts and all of those. Um, and that's really where, where my attention has been. But I've also applied that to the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Uh, you know, my wife and I wrote a piece where we helped identify who unknown manuscript or unknown scribe number three is. And, and also who wrote the character's document, which isn't the person that the Joseph Smith Papers Project says it is. And um, who, who was so, it? Well, they say it's John Whitmer. Okay. And we went to great lengths. We gave a presentation in um, 2013 in which we presented considerable evidence that in fact, it is not John Whitmer, but is his brother Christian. And that his brother Christian is also the scribe for other revelations that have been copied that they've just said, this is in an unknown scribal hand, as well as being unknown scribe number three for the, the Book of Mormon. And so, um, you know, those are some things that we put together and that's what I enjoy. That's the level of analysis that I think scholars need to take it to. And it's a little bit frustrating when I see scholars, you know, basically proof texting 
you know, Mormon scripture without understanding the underlying textual development of a given verse. And as a result, they leave themselves incredibly, two things. One, they leave themselves incredibly vulnerable for critique. But secondly, they're completely misleading their readers. And so I have a really strong feeling about that, that that needs to be corrected. And I, I'm also very open to helping my friends, you know, who are also deeply involved in this type of research to help them get to where they need to go as well, because I'm happy to share my knowledge. What are some of the things that you doing 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 your research basically since 1979 and writing papers and articles? Yeah. What, what would you say? What would you give me some of the highlights of some of the things that some of the important contributions that you've made or or things that you've uh, uncovered that were big surprises to you? Well, um, a couple of the things I would say is my my essay in my 19. 93 uh, publication, New Approaches to the Book of Mormon, which is on the priority of Mosiah. And um, what's important about that, now keep in mind, the idea of the priority of Mosiah was already talked about before I ever published this article. But in this article, I try to explain that the reasons why people have accepted that notion in the past are in fact misguided and often simply incorrect. And so I went through, the first thing I do is I go through some of those very specific arguments and debunk them and just say, no, the, these are not going to work. And then I give very specific arguments as to other reasons why we should believe that this is the case. And the one thing that I would change in that is a section of my text critical portion, because all I had access to at the time were rather poor photocopies of the microfilm of the, uh, you know, the printer's manuscript. And so the argument that I made there, I think is actually incorrect. Now that I've seen color, well, I've analyzed the, the printer's manuscript in person at the Community of, or Community of Christ Archive. And I've looked at it, analyzed it, and I know that the argument I made doesn't work because mine was going off of, you know, these black and white poor photocopies. And that's all I had access to. I tried to get access to more, but I couldn't. And so the other arguments I made, though, are extremely persuasive, um, including noting the evolution of Joseph Smith's use of the terms therefore and wherefore, 
where they flow in the order that I argue is the actual dictation sequence and not in the order of the current printed Book of Mormon. And so um, I think that that is a very important discovery. And that's something that I actually discovered in the mid 1980s. And I was taking handwritten calculations of all of these because this is pre-computer days for me anyway, right? Mm -hmm. I'm making handwritten calculations of all of these uh, words. And I think I got it pretty much correct all the way through. And you can see an absolute development and the order of Mosiah priority going through and then going back to first Nephi through words of Mormon. Hmm. Wow. And so that was one thing. Then other things, uh, I, I corrected the identification of uh, a picture that, that was argued to be that of Charles Anton right and it's actually in the joseph smith papers right if you i i believe it's in volume one of of uh the document series and so um and it was on their website for a very long time and so i wrote this piece up and the library of congress even had it incorrect yep and so i went through and said no it's not Charles, it's his brother. <laughs> and, and so I went through and corrected that. And, and the Library of Congress actually changed it. You they know, changed the identification you. based on some emails that I sent to him. Yeah, and more power to you. I mean, because I've seen that picture before. And I was like, and it had it described as Charles Anton. Exactly, exactly. And it's actually Anton. Oh, it, like like uh, Mark Antony. Oh, okay. Right. And the reason why we know that is because I believe it was his nephew or someone actually explains the pronunciation of their last name. Huh. And it's Anton, not Anthon. So anyway, oh, there you go. Another discovery. But but my wife Erin made that discovery. That oh, that's so. so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So getting back to the characters document, you said that it was written by Christian Whitmer. Was that the document that Anton saw, do you believe? Or is no, it a copy? No, no, it wasn't. It couldn't have been, right? Because Joseph isn't even with Christian until he goes to Fayette, New York. And so no, it, no, it couldn't have been Christian. But um, the reason why how we determine this is that there's a photograph, you know, that, that was taken probably later 1800s, and it's a picture of the character's document. But what it includes is the rest of the piece of paper that was underneath, but it's kind of folded up in pieces, but there's a portion right under the character's document in handwriting, you know, the book of the generation of Adam. 
is sitting there. And we looked at that. We started researching like mad. Whose handwriting does this match? Well, the Joseph Smith papers, you know, those folks identified it as John Whitmer. Well, we went through and said, no way, this cannot be John. And there are several key indicators as to why. And so we only had one sample of Christian Whitmer's signature. And that particular sample actually had the characteristic features, you know, that we see in that handwriting. And then we just, we discovered an, a second signature by Christian from 1834. And when, you know, we were lit, I was literally sitting in our hotel room the night before we were getting ready to, to present this, when finally they send it to us. And we get it and I go, it's him. It's absolutely him. Look at all of these features, right? And don't remember this too, that um, David Whitmer had said that his brother, Christian, had served as a scribe for the Book of Mormon for a period of time. And so um, we looked at that signature and it had every classical feature. So I immediately took it and put it into our PowerPoint presentation, which was this multimedia presentation basically, and aligned everything, all of the letter characteristics, everything else with all of the documents, right? Ranging from the character's document to the, the revelations that were supposedly in unknown hand and then unknown scribe three to the Book of Mormon. And they all align. And so that, that was, let's put it this way. After it was over, uh, Mike McKay, who is one of the authors of the piece for the Joseph Smith Papers Project, he came up to me and he said, I really wish we had known about your research before we had published our piece. And, and I have since talked to Robin Jensen about this, who, whom I know that you've talked to. Mm -hmm. And, and I asked him, so what do you think? And he said, well, let, let me put it this way. You convinced me it's not John Whitmer. And I'm 95% convinced that it's Christian. He said, because you can't be 100% convinced. You know, as a historian, there's always got to be room for doubt. And so... You know, these are the guys who are directly involved in this research, although Mike McKay did most of it, you know, and to his credit, he, he did a ton of research on this. Um, he was one of the ones who did paper analysis on it and determining that it didn't match anything in the Book of Mormon manuscripts or anything like that. 
So we know that. Um, so yeah, that that was an important discovery. But you know, like I said, I share that credit with my wife, Erin. Wow, awesome. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to actually oh, nine pounds here. All right. So this is a big yeah. book. Um, one of the things actually, when I talk with um, when I talk with Robin, I brought up to him that I've been talking to some people that are trying to get the characters document under a spectral analysis, like they did with the original manuscript. Do you think that they might be able to find some? If that were to happen, we might see what kind of insights we might be able to derive from something like that. Do you think possibly? Okay. What one of the more interesting uh, things that's on the characters document is there's actually a word on the opposite side of it that's been um, erased because we, you know, we saw the original, we were handling it at the community of, or community of Christ archives. I keep wanting to put a definite article in the front of that, but it actually doesn't have one. Um, and uh, the word genuine is written on the back of it. So that's been one of the bigger mysteries is trying to figure out who wrote that word on the back because um, it's not as clear to us as to who would have done that. And I, I mean, we speculated on it, but we really don't know for sure. I mean, it's one, one word and that's it. And so, somebody just wrote the word genuine on the back of it and i'm not sure what that means at all yeah but if you want to buy it it's available for sale from community of christ a uh, a copy of that right yeah. no I mean, they sold the printers yeah that script. one that one yeah that one right there yeah so and that um, one's available i think it's a i want to say it's like is it a couple of million or a couple of hundred thousand? I can't remember. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you had mentioned to me the other day too that you have actually uh, have been um, been given credit in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Is that correct? Correct. Um, in the uh, the Book of Abraham uh, volume, um, I was asked to to do a scholarly review of that. And so I did, and I, I gave them a 24-page review that was basically, these are many of my corrections that I would make, and also some of these are just examples of the types of corrections that I think need to be made throughout the volume. And so, yeah, yeah, and then I, I also talk to him a little bit about the history of the manuscript because I had it uh, broken up into three sections and you know a portion of it covered the history you know a portion of it covered the the text critical presentation and then a bit more on annotations and things like that and so yeah yeah, and they, they, I was given credit for that. And, and I was given a, a small, you know, stipend for, 
for doing that as well. So in 1993, you came out with that book. What was that you edited about the Book of Mormon? What was the name of that um, again? It was New Approaches New to approaches. the Book of Mormon, Explorations and Critical Methodology. So yeah. I had, was going through your bibliography and came across an image of that book. I was like, by golly gee, I checked that book out of the library. I read that thing a long time ago. It was a familiar cover to me. And uh, so that was an interesting, um, you know, I, I, I don't really remember much, but I'm sure there's probably something in my head that I remember from reading right. there. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, I, the reason why I bring up the date 1993, because your excommunication was in 1994. And I'm just right, wondering, the next just, year. let's talk a little bit about that. What, 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 was, what was going on there? Well, basically what, what it came down to is um, the book. Uh, my, my dear friend, uh, David Wright, had been fired from BYU over what he was writing. And he had an essay in our book and um, so he went to Brandeis University, and that's and that's where he was teaching. And um, sorry if I'm shifting around a lot because I had two re hips replaced in the last two years, and oh, so yeah, it's a, it's a congenital disorder. But anyway, uh, yeah, so it's hard to get comfortable sometimes. Understood, but. Um, you know, he, he had been excommunicated for his essay in the book. And, and that was April of 1994. And um, as well as another essay had, he had written, which was actually, I think, really innocuous. And so um, he was at Brandeis. He got excommunicated. Um, he was a professor of Hebrew and Judaic studies. And then in December of 1994, I was excommunicated. But just prior to that, I had a knock at my door one night, open the door. It's my stake president. Now, I had never met him before. And so he had to introduce himself to me as my stake president. And so he said, do you have a few minutes that I can talk to you? And I said, sure, come on in. And so he came in and after exchanging a few uh, pleasantries, I said, so what's the real reason why you're here? And that's when he, he just cut right to the chase. He said, Brent, I, I think we're going to have to hold a church court on you for what you've written. And I just felt like, okay, when? And that, that was my attitude, right? I, I mean, I, it's like, I'm not going to be intimidated by that by any means. And so um, then we scheduled the date for December. And, uh, you know, I went to the, the church court, mainly because 
I was really curious to see what this was all about. I mean, I'd heard about these things my my whole life. And, and I also felt to a certain degree that for me to miss it, it would be like missing a rite of passage, right? Okay. Like you have your baptism, you have your temple marriage, you go on a mission, you do all these things. And now here I am in a church court. Why would I not want to miss that, right? I mean, it's it's like, no, I, I'm going to go. And so I did. And uh, yeah, it did not end well. I mean, I I spoke for probably about an hour. And then the, the rest of the group spoke for about an hour and questioned me about different things. And, um, and I learned something really interesting about church courts because I had often heard throughout my life that you have, you know, six of the high councilmen who are basically uh, the prosecution, if you will. Then six others are basically the defense. And that's not at all what it was. It was basically, everyone is kind of the prosecution. The only difference is, is that six of them are assigned to ensure that nothing untoward happens to the person who is on trial in this court of love, right? And so um, that that was kind of a twist to me. That that kind of surprised me. But just the formality of walking in the room, and when when they brought me in the room, like everybody's standing almost at attention, and it was just very strange. And it's like in a big U-shape setting where you have six high councilmen on each side of the tables. Then you have the stake presidency and, you know, the, the stake clerk sitting next to them at the other end. And then I'm sitting at the opposite end. So there I am on my own, right, surrounded by all of these folks. And, you know, in retrospect, that was a really strange event. But... Um, it went on, like I said, for about two hours. And at the end, I opted to actually stay and wait for the verdict. And it took him about, I want to say about 55 minutes or so. And I was called back in. And that's when I was told I was being excommunicated. I mean, my state president had new approaches to the Book of Mormon sitting right on the table in front of him the whole time the proceeding was happening. And so I was told I was being excommunicated, and that was it. And I stood up, and they were all coming over and, like, shaking hands with me like I was to be congratulated about this. And one of them even said, well, maybe you'll be like Alma or the sons of Mosiah, right? <laughs> Who had angels appear to him and they came back to the church. 
And I, I looked at him dead in the eye and I said, there's one difference. They were never excommunicated. Hmm. Hmm. Yep. And, and he just stood there speechless. He didn't know what to say. And that's the fact of the matter, right? Mm -hmm. They were never cut off from the church. They were going out persecuting the church and all kinds of things. And, and I wasn't doing that, certainly. And so it's, it's kind of ironic to see where, where they went with that. So and, was it? Just so I'm curious, was it a member of the congregation that read your book and was offended? Or do you think that maybe they got a telephone call to uh, proceed with this court? Well, it, actually, it's interesting that you should say that because I was asked during the, the course of the proceedings uh, by one of the high councilmen, do you believe that like general authorities have directed us to do this. And I turned to him, to all of them, and I said, no, I believe what the state president told me. And he said that he was directed to do this because of the complaint from the bishop of my ward. And I could see it, it was a really awkward moment because I could see some of them looking at each other in awkward silence, like they had no idea what I was talking about. But that's how I put it. So I gave them the benefit of the doubt, and I said that. And it wasn't until after I left that day that, um, I submitted a request from the First Presidency to, for a temple divorce from my first marriage because I had found out that if my ex-wife had decided to get married in the temple again, they would have to contact me and get my permission. And that just made no sense to me. I'm excommunicated. Presumably, I don't even have the priesthood anymore. But they're still going to contact me for permission. Like in this huge patriarchal thing. And, and I just thought, no, I don't want you to contact me again. And so I submitted that to the First Presidency. It went back to my bishop, whom I had never met, by, by the way, and he calls me and says, you know, Brent, I, I'd really like to have a chat with you. And so I go in and me, I, I agree to it. I'm, you know, amenable to whatever, you know, I don't have any hard feelings about any of this. So I go in to meet with him and he says, and he tries to talk me out of it. He literally tries to talk me out of the temple divorce. Interesting. And I said, no, this is a done deal. You know, there's no nothing to discuss or anything else. Was it because they wanted to keep you somewhat tethered to the church? Exactly. 
see. And so he he says to me, he, he said, okay, we'll respect your wishes. We'll go ahead and see this through. And then I, I turned to them and I said, Bishop, what was it that led a member to come to you to talk to you about my book? And I said, because that's what the state president told me. And it, he had his head down and he was just shaking it. And he looked up and his face was completely red. And he just said, Brent, I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about because I have never talked with the stake president about your book mm. Mm. and i was just like wow what what a fitting end huh yeah wow you know after everything i've been through this is this is how it all ends yeah and would you at this point you're just excommunicated were you still a believer were you an agnostic at this point no 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 i I hadn't believed for quite some time. I mean, like I said, I would describe myself uh, more as a secular humanist. So at the time, but, you would have felt but, that way. But clearly, um, not a believer. Okay. At all, and and that's part of the reason why I didn't really care that much about what was happening. I had tried to put the best foot forward in my book to not be confrontational or brutal or anything else. Didn't matter. It just didn't matter. To be honest with you, if I had written the book today, I don't know that I would have been excommunicated. That's what I was thinking too. I'm thinking yeah. the, the you know what I'm, there's a theme here. It's the timing. You got the timing wrong, what Brent? You know, no. <laughs> both times. I know so that. 1983 <laughs> and 1993. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born about 30 years too early, I guess. Wow. So pretty wild. Well, I just wanted to you know kind of just wrap this up a little bit and just talk about how. Um, about a year ago, we're coming on the one-year anniversary of the series, A Murder Among the Mormons. Um, yes. And um, I've spoken to almost, actually, uh, Brent Ashworth and Sandra Tanner have been on. Uh, I, I did talk to Jared Hess. He's expressed interest in maybe coming on my program at some point as well. And and and, and uh, so I had the honor to meet many of them at the uh, Mormon History Association when they gave a panel. I guess I just wanted to ask you, because, you know, um, you know my friend Christopher Thomas and I, um, he's the Dr. Thomas wrote the Pentecostal reads the Book of Mormon, and oh right, and uh, we 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 discussed you in particular. Um, him and I about once a week or every other week we'll sit down and do two hour Zoom calls and just talk about Mormonism because we're about the only two people on the planet doing what we're doing, you know. <laughs> so we got to talk to each other, and nice. and but he had he had mentioned to me how just how we were both touched by you in watching, the, I mean, uh, watching Murder Among the Mormons, it seems like you were still processing things. 
you were still working things out. I don't really want to talk about um, Hoffman. I just want to talk about one, what was it like revisiting it with these interviews and, and, and how did they approach you and were you reluctant or were you wanting to do this? I mean, just talk about the process of going on this program. Okay, so I, I, I was approached and um, it took a little bit of time. I, I went out and watched some of Tyler Meesom's other works that he had done. Um, you know, the, the piece that he had done on uh, James Randi, hmm. who's somebody that yeah. I've been following for decades, right until his death. I mean, he, he was somebody who I admired in a way because of how, how direct he was in confronting certain issues. Um, I want to say it's called the truthful liar or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so a fascinating documentary. And then he also did one on some of the, uh, I believe some of the polygamous children who have left the faith. And the, I, I enjoyed his works. I thought that they were so well done. And so I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. And so I agreed to it. But I went through a ton of turmoil leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And they were actually, originally, my wife and I were going to fly out there. But then I said, I'd rather just do it in our home. And that's so all the shots that you see of me, that's me in our house. Right. And um, they were going to New York to interview folks. And then coming this way, they were kind of making their way across the country. So they came here. And I remember just a, a day or two before they arrived, talking to my wife and just saying, I can't do this. Hmm. I can't do it. I don't want to. This is going to be awful. I can't do this. And she was the one who talked me into it, actually, and said, look, just do this and get it out of you. Mm -hmm. You know, and so to a large degree, that experience was extremely cathartic. And um that's kind of what was going on with me through that whole thing. I mean, I was interviewed for a good eight hours over two days. And um, it, it was extremely emotionally taxing from beginning to end. Even, even at times where I seem happy or fine or whatever during the interview inside I was torn apart the the whole time hmm. and um it's never gone away it won't ever go away yeah yeah you know um it's just never going to leave and so I'm kind of stuck with that Mm -hmm. And 
I've grown accustomed to it. I remember for the longest time when October 15 would roll around, I would start feeling all kinds of anxiety and I wouldn't even know why. Mm. And then all of a sudden I remember what the anniversary was. And that happened for years and years and years. It was awful. And so, yeah, incredibly difficult and, and gut-wrenching. And it's not easy to talk about your most intimate feelings when you're on camera. Yeah. That can be extraordinarily difficult. So and it was. It it was yeah, I mean it was just, it was amazing just watching you. And I, I just want to ask you, did you actually sit down and watch the full Murder Among the Mormon series? Yeah, not at first. Mm -hmm. I I mean it it took me a little bit of time to want to watch it. And finally I did. And it, it was hard because I felt like I was reliving a lot of that again. And so it, it was difficult. That's all I can say. It was very difficult. Well, I just wanted to thank you for talking about that and sharing that. And then another individual that was also part of that forum, I, I thought we need to talk about Kurt Bench. Um, you know, right. past, this past summer, I had the opportunity, wonderful opportunity to meet him at the Mormon History Association, uh, just a great human being, wonderful person. Yes. Maybe just say a few things about Kurt. Oh, <laughs> Kurt, Kurt was awesome along with all of his uh, study group that he would bring together to go to lunch. And almost every time I would go back to Utah because you know I live out of state, almost every time I'd go back to Utah, he would ask me to come and have lunch with all of them. And just some wonderful, historians and bibliophiles would all gather together and we just have these wonderful conversations and the the topic of course would be what's the latest research that you've been working on and and Kurt was always so hospitable and oh gosh I've known Kurt since the early 80s. I mean, going back to his Deseret Book days, all the way through that. Um, and he's always been just a wonderful friend and just a kind soul. And as I said in the interview that I did with the, the two of us, I said that one of the things, if not the thing, that I love most about Kurt and admire is his inclusivity. He wants to bring everybody into his circle. 
Nobody gets excluded. Doesn't matter what your thinking is, whether it agrees with his or not. Doesn't matter. And that's an incredible attribute. I, I wish we could see that in more people. I mean, I, I try and be that way, you know, but, but Kurt had it mastered. And so he was kind of the person I would look up to as being, what would Kurt do type of thing under certain circumstances. And um, when I found out about his passing, it, it was just heart-wrenching. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's the thing, you know, part of this purpose of this channel is to be inclusive and talk to all the voices of the restoration, um, hear all the voices, and, and, and give a place where we can have conversations and have civil conversations with each other and have people talking, I mean, um, Rodney Meldrum is going on John DeLynn's Mormon stories because I facilitated that. Oh, nice. You know, nice. that's the kind of thing I try to do is not only am I trying to talk to everybody, but I'm trying to get people to talk to each other off, off camera too. And so, that's great. And, and that's kind of, it just kind of happened and it's happened. I think it's because people look at me as just being neutral and fair and everything. And right. I'm, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm just trying to say that, uh -huh. you know, I like people like Kurt because they're bridge builders, not wall builders. Yes. And that's what we need more of. And, yes. you know, Brent, I just want to thank you so much um, for taking the time here on a Friday night uh, to sit down and talk with me. Um, I just want to ask you if you have any final words for my audience. You know, I, I, I think I probably want to end it on the, the tone that we just set. And that is that you know, don't try and block people out, but bring them in. Don't create a smaller umbrella, but create an all-inclusive umbrella. Because I'll tell you right now, I've got very dear family members who are active, active LDS, whom I love dearly. And we are we are so close and we all love each other that is what people need to do you know and and now i've gone from the the potential antagonist of mormon history when i first went through all my trauma and trying to figure out what's going on with the church to being the family church history expert. And so that, that tells you how far we've come. I get consulted from them about what I think on different issues. And, and the, the fact is, is that I, I love them dearly. That's never going to end. And I hope that other people get that message. You know, I think that's so important. And really, when you think about the most important thing, we can talk about history, we can talk about scholarship, but really, it's about relationship. That's the most important thing as humans is relational. I and, absolutely agree. And so I think that's what this, this is what it's all about, folks. You yeah. know, let's quit using these crazy things that separate us 
these, uh, you know, these barriers that we put up, it just causes hurt. Let's just tear them all down and just recognize we're all part of a universal family. I agree. Well, Brent, thank you so much for coming on today. And thank you for inviting me, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. So I just want to thank you, the audience, for watching. Um, just want to remind you that uh, my Patreon page, if you'd like to support my program financially, is available. Also, uh, we do are available on most of the major podcast formats. Um, if you wish to uh, reach me, you can contact me at mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification button to be informed when a new episode comes out. You all have yourself a great day.